As we approach this word on this day, would you join me please in a moment of prayer? Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For indeed, you are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. I'm named after my grandfather, Robert Small. The R in R. Glenn Miles stands for Robert. Grandpa grew up on a farm in eastern Kansas. He was a high school basketball all-star. I think somewhere in the fine print of the Kansas Constitution, there's a requirement that all Kansas boys must, must play basketball, and he was a good one. After he graduated from high school, Grandpa took care of the family farm for about four years. Then at age 22, he married my grandmother. They started a new life together. Grandpa never went to college, but he did become a very successful furniture salesman. He made quite a good living, was very successful in life, in that simple yet noble profession. As a young boy, I thought my grandfather was the greatest human being on the planet. I loved him dearly. Even when I became a young adult and found out that we disagreed on some things about the Bible and church and politics and some other stuff, I still admired him greatly, and even to this day, my admiration continues to grow. Why? He was one of the most generous persons I've ever met. He was more than happy to give away anything in order to help another person. As the cliche goes, he walked the talk. He loved his daughter, my mom. He loved his four grandchildren with passion and grace. I remember when my mom and dad hit a tough spot in their marriage and in a tough spot financially, it was grandpa who made sure that we had enough groceries on the table. It was grandpa who made sure that the water didn't get turned off, that the lights stayed on. He was more than happy to make sure his grandchildren were taken care of. When Julie and I first got married, he helped us also. He was very generous in the way he helped set us up for our married lives together. Even when I went to seminary, he sent checks regularly for tuition, saying, if you, are, if you don't need any for tuition, then enjoy a nice meal on me. He, grandpa loved his work. He enjoyed selling furniture. He would have agreed with something that Simon Sinek said, working hard for something we don't care about is called stress. Working hard for something we love is called passion. You see, my grandpa, he, he didn't sell furniture, really. He helped people turn their houses or their apartments into homes. He was passionate about helping people create a space where the family could gather for a meal, where friends could come together for, for an evening conversation. He was passionate about helping people turn their houses into homes. That was his key to success. I remember when I was in seminary, Julie and I flew home to the West Coast to see my grandparents and see my family and spend Thanksgiving with them one holiday. Grandpa and I got into an argument about something in the Bible. We were going back and forth, and I was nitpicking him pretty good on different things he was saying. Finally, he just stopped. He said, grandson, let me tell you something. There's only two things you need to do in your ministry. Number one, and he pointed at Julie, you love Julie. Number two, you love your church. You do that, you'll be a success. Do you have any more questions? <laughs> I don't remember what we argued about. I'll never forget how passionate he was about those two things. So simple and so clear. He told me that no matter how much he'd given away in his life, he'd always gotten so much more in return. He was, he was, his was a, a life that was generous and overflowing with friends and family and love grace and goodness. He wasn't perfect. 
But I'll tell you, the life he lived looked a whole lot like the teaching that we heard from Jesus today. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Earlier in the teaching, Jesus said, don't condemn, don't judge. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Don't you just love how simple and clear it is? Tom Wright, who's a very good uh, New Testament theologian, says that this text is one of the simplest and easiest to understand in all of the Bible. It's so clear, so obvious. You can read the book of Revelation or read lots of things in the Old Testament, confusing, strange, hard to understand. Here, Tom Wright points out, very simple. But he says, secondly, the scarcity of the practice of these teachings in the church is an extraordinarily sad thing. The teachings are so simple and clear, but we get caught up and confused about how to live in the church. He writes, and I'm quoting him directly now, we must admit with shame that large sections of Christianity down the years seem to have known little or nothing of the God Jesus was talking about. It kind of hurts to hear that. Unless you think, by the way, that I'm just quoting some progressive, left-leaning theologian like me. No, no, no. Tom Wright, good scholar, also an evangelical Christian who reads the Bible well and recognizes that for, for, for far too long, we Christians have been known not for our generosity of spirit, but our inability to practice the love we so often proclaim. That, that's why we love a Camp Akita so much. That's why you hear so many stories on both of our campuses about our third campus, our campground, where every young person who steps off the bus is greeted by name and welcomed as though they're the most important person in the place. That's why our kids go to Camp Akita and come back and say, oh my gosh, are you kidding? How amazing it was. It was like heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like, isn't it? Where there is no condemnation, no judgment, where grace and forgiveness and mercy abound, where everyone is treated as though they are Jesus Christ himself. Kempakita is what we pray for every, every week in church, for heaven on earth. Maybe you know that during the, the, the first 300 years of the church, the church grew like wildfire. Why? Because they were at the center of the power of control of the government? No, they were ostracized, pushed to the side often. Sometimes it was dangerous, downright downright terrible to be a Christian because of the way they were persecuted, and yet the churches continued to grow. People began to convert to Christian faith. Why? Because everyone on the outside looking in said, look how much they love one another. They didn't understand the church's religion. They didn't understand they only had one God. In antiquity, most religions had many, many gods. They didn't understand all of that, but they could understand the love they saw, and the people on the outside wanted to be a part of that. The church was famous in the first 300 years for providing health care for anyone and everyone. If you walked into a church and said, I'm ill, I need some help, I've been injured, can you treat me? The church would do so and expect no payment in, in response. Wouldn't even expect you to come to church the next Sunday. The church exploded because they were willing to practice the simple teachings of Jesus, to love enemies, to be forgiving, to welcome anyone and everyone. I, I like to quote from Bono all the time. He sings in the rock group U2. And the reason I, I quote from him is not just because I think it makes me look cool, but because I think he's, he's actually a, a, an amazing Christian. You listen to some of their music, you listen to things they say, and it's amazing how, how carefully they follow Jesus. A few years ago, he was on the Larry King show, and he said, you know, Jesus teaches grace. 
the world teaches karma. You get what you deserve. Too often the church has made the mistake of teaching karma rather than Jesus. I think he's right. Too often the church has embraced power over love, position over mercy. Imagine, though, what it would be like, what a community would be like, where grace and mercy and inclusivity were practiced. What would that look like? It would look like heaven. Which reminds me, there's a, a cute little story about Peter and Paul in heaven. They, they're going through their records every day, keeping track of who's come into heaven on that particular day, and they begin to notice after, after keeping track for many years that there are more people in heaven than there are in the book, according to who should be there. They're, they're very upset. Peter says to Paul, why don't you go out and figure out what's going on out there? Look around heaven and see what's, what's happening. We've got to figure out why are there so many people here? There are just thousands, millions more people that are rocking around heaven than should be here. So Paul goes out and does some investigation. A few days later, he comes back and says, Peter, I figured it out. It's Jesus. He's sneaking people over the wall. <laughs> it's Jesus. He's sneaking people over the wall. It's so true, isn't it? If we lived in the way that Jesus instructs, a life with grace and forgiveness and mercy and generosity at the center of who we are, if the church put those things into practice, there would be no walls. There would be no barriers. They would all be torn down because of the simple truth of the goodness of God's love for the world. If we could put that into practice. Rabbi Harold, Harold Kushner tells a story about the time a man came to see him. He was agitated. He was upset. He had a religious question for his rabbi. He told Kushner that he'd been to a funeral for a friend a couple of weeks before. He said, Rabbi, I looked around the room and I realized that the man was the same age as me and all of us were thinking the same thing. That could be me in the coffin. He'd lived his life, he'd done all these things, and now he's gone in a heartbeat. His life was over. And two weeks later, I went back to my office, he said to the rabbi, his office, where this man worked near me, 50 feet away, already been cleaned out. There's already somebody new in his space. His wife has moved away to another state. It's as though he never existed. Kushner says, most of us really aren't afraid of death. What we're afraid of is living a life that doesn't matter, of living a life without meaning. This is why the, the teaching of Jesus, that simple word is so clear. It invites us to a full life, to a full sense of being and being alive in the world of, of God's spirit living within us so that we become generous and gracious and kind in ways that we could never have imagined before. It's not the fear of death that bothers us. It's the haunting feeling that we may not be living a life that matters. You see, the happiest people I've known in my ministry are the ones who truly give themselves away. Whether it's in grace and forgiveness, kindness, or an acts of, of, of mercy or, or help. The ones who volunteer at the church or volunteer at the food shelters that do things to care for their neighbors. Those are the ones I've seen in my own experience who have been the happiest, most content people. I'm thinking especially this morning of my friend Max. Max is an old Marine. He is not a former Marine, and he will correct you if you call him a former Marine. Max is 96 years old, but he still stands up straight, and I still think he could probably beat me up if he wanted to. He's a tough old guy, but Max is one of the happiest persons I've ever seen. One day a week, he volunteers and takes meals on wheels to senior adults who otherwise might go hungry. 
Another day of the week, he volunteers at the church where he works in the business office. Another day, he volunteers at a funeral home where he takes care of folks who are experiencing grief. Max is an incredible guy. And he's so satisfied, so relaxed, so happy. One of the happiest people I've ever met. What we're talking about here today is the way generosity fuels our faith. Marcus Borg says that faith at its deepest level is the way of the heart. He says that love will be the sign of your faith. Not the list of things you believe, not your particular religion of this or that or another one, but the way love stands in your life will define everything we need to know about you. Brene Brown writes in a similar way from the sociological perspective. She reminds us that the word courage, for example, comes from the French word for heart, that is cour. Courage, in her idea, comes from our heart. To have courage is to allow your heart to lead you on the way, to be your guide. Now, I know that none of these things are easy. As simple and as clear as Jesus' teaching is, it's still not an easy way to live. It's difficult. It's even more so when the ugliness of evil raises its terrible head in our land. Last week after the shootings in Las Vegas, I wondered on Monday morning, what am I going to do with this, this little sermon on generosity? What am I going to say? It, it, it's happened again. It's happened again. And so I looked more carefully at the crowd. I watched several of the videos. And then I read as many stories as I could of the way people responded in the crowd in the middle of that terrible and horrible scene. I read stories of, of the way people's hearts led their, their, their bodies back into the shooting, for example. There was a story of a nurse who ran away as soon as she heard the shootings and ran as quickly as she could outside of the concert venue, got to a place where she was safe, and then she, she couldn't help herself. She ran back. The shots were still firing but there were people bleeding, there were people wounded. She was trained, she knew how to help them. She ran back into the crowd, back into the terror to do everything she could to help those who were injured. There was a story of a man, a taxi driver, who was parked not far away. He heard the sound of the gunshots at first and thought they were firecrackers, realized that somebody was, being, that somebody was shooting. He drove his taxi cab into the crowd, saw that there were many wounded, got as many of them as he could into his taxi, drove away from the shooting, took them to the emergency room to get them the help they needed. There was another story of a woman who was trying to run away, but she'd been shot in the leg. She collapsed. A man running behind her stopped. He didn't know her. She didn't know him. He saw the wound in her leg. He took off his belt. He tied a tourniquet around her leg, stopped the bleeding, picked her up, threw her over his shoulder, and ran her out of that space. Dozens and dozens and dozens of stories. And note this, not a single person stopped to say, excuse me, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Not a single person said, are you a Muslim or a Christian? Are you an atheist or a Jew? There was no conversation about their politics, no conversation about their religion or their lack of it. No, it was human beings seeing other human beings in need and their hearts led the way to do the thing that needed to be done to care for their neighbor. In the midst of the carnage and the terror, their hearts gave them courage. I'm wondering today if the same sort of courage could take over Congress. 
I'm wondering today, in the face of another round of shocking violence, if the women and men we've elected to serve this great land can put their own political differences aside, forget about the lobbyist money that are filling their pockets, and actually get together, together, Republicans and Democrats and any other independents who are in the room, and talk to each other about how we end the scourge of this violence. I wonder if they can find the same courage, not worry about November, but serve the people of this great land. Let their hearts lead the way. What would happen? What about church? What about us? Can we find the will and frankly the courage that we need to live as followers of Jesus to let this simple teaching in Luke take hold of us? Tom Wright, that theologian I quoted earlier, he said that if any church community could practice this, there would be within that community no violence, no revenge, no division. We'd forget about our possessions and be concerned primarily about each other. Jesus tells us that living with gracious and generous hearts will set us free for love, for more love, for joy, for more joy, for faith, for more faith. Generosity will overflow within us and our dreams can come true. When I wrote those words earlier this week, I wrote down on my little pad that I keep next to my, my computer, what are our dreams? And I wondered. I flipped through my files and I found an old sermon by a preacher I used to read all the time. Forty years ago, he said, how could we have a faith that guarantees us a way to get everything men and women dream for when our dreams won't pass mustard? It's our dreams that are the problem. What about our dreams? When are they going to be changed? Can we have a faith built on God's love, God's sacrifice, and God's forgiveness? Forty years later, his words are like a prophecy. Our dreams are the problem. Are we ready? Are we ready to dream of a congregation built on faith in a God Whose love, who loves and forgives everyone? Are we ready to dream of a church where anyone and everyone will be welcomed regardless of who they are? A church that will be overflowing with young and old, rich and poor, gay and straight, Republican and Democrat and anything else in all of God's creation? Are we ready to be a church that will do whatever it takes to get this word out to the community, to the world, a world that is literally dying for a bit of hope, for the courage of the heart? Are we ready to dream with God to allow the dreams of heaven to become our dreams too? Never in my life have I been faced with so great a challenge, but never in my life have I been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. First Community Church, the world needs us. The world needs you.